Welcome to My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast with no quiz at the end. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. I am joined today by your fabulous and glorious other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I assume the fabulous and glorious means my new haircut, which I actually got professionally cut for the first time in quite a while recently. I had Good been for you. playing around with, you know, scissors, not official haircutting scissors, just, you know, the scissors that are lying in the kitchen drawer and like my clippers and stuff for a while. But I, I went in and I look very sleek and chic right you, now. You look very sleek. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a haircut tomorrow. I look less sleek. I, you know, I've, I still have the Not plague too bad, beard. Though. I still have the plague beard though. I, I, I don't know. I can't decide what to do about that. And my, my hair has gotten longer, but you know, it's thinning and I don't know what to do anymore. So my husband, uh, uh, yeah. actually decided to try for the ponytail. Um, so that okay. he had been very excited about like two weeks after the second shot going mm -hmm. and like getting a real haircut for the first time in a while. And then by that time it was long enough that it, it's almost ponytailable. He's like, mm -hmm. I've never had a ponytail. I think I want to try this. So, so now okay. we're like at opposite, you know, going sure. in opposite directions. I, I, I have a ponytail in my wedding pictures and then that's the Aww. last one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, today we are pleased to welcome uh, our good friend Liz Munch. Liz, you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yep. So I'm Liz Munch. So I am an assistant professor at Michigan State University. Uh, I'm in the departments of computational mathematics, science, and engineering, which is a mouthful, but we just say CMSE. And I'm also in the department of mathematics. All right. And what is your recent hair story? <laughs> it's it's the it's it's the kind of like what can I do rolling out of the shower to like make it do anything and it's it's kind of the like wherever it lands I did get a haircut there recently it was very exciting I had it nice. it was getting so long that it was like going out of control and usually what happens is I I go get a haircut and I do like extreme versions I'm like I hate my hair and then I chop it off to my ears and then I grow it out again and then I hate my hair and I chop it off to my ears this time yeah. she convinced me not to chop it off all the way, but I'm due for one. So we're going to work on, work on getting that one soon again. <laughs> yes. Looks good. Looks good. Yeah. So uh, CSME, that's interesting. You have this joint appointment. Uh, how's that working yeah. out? I like it. Do it's you? different. Um, mm -hmm. So at least for me, so, so I do very interdisciplinary math, uh, very applied math. Uh, but not your usual applied math. Um, and so for me, it's a it's a really nice uh, setting to be in. So CMSE is, uh, so the, the faculty in CMSE are all sorts of different backgrounds. So it's, you know, there's mathematicians, but there's also like statisticians and biostatisticians and biologists and plant biologists and geologists and physicists and engineers. And I'm sure I'm forgetting people, um, but it's basically like rigged to be interdisciplinary. Um, and so it's made it a lot of fun because you can find these interesting projects that are sort of in the intersection of complicated math and interesting stuff to do there with uh, applied projects I would never have thought of before. Yeah. Um, cool. So at least for me, that's been a really good fit for, for trying to do like interesting applied math research, uh, you know, explicitly outside of the usual ac academic silos. Yeah, well, that's nice because I, I think a lot of us in math departments often want to engage in these activities, but you know, the physics department's in another building, and <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's like it's 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 more effort. Whereas you know, it's true. There's this idea of these collision spaces. So, you know, if you, if you have colleagues in all these different disciplines just right down the hall, uh, it, it might lead to to more interesting stuff. 
So but yeah. that, that's a that's a nice model. I wish wish, mm-hmm. I wish we could do more of that. Anyway, so you have a favorite theorem, I hear. I do have a favorite theorem. You're gonna tell so us. So I was going to talk about uh, Max Flow Min Cut. Okay. Um, which is sort of my, I don't know. It's okay. So so the reason I like Max Flow Min Cut. Um, is partially because, again, I do interdisciplinary applied mathematics, and I tend to fall into the theoretical computer science land a lot, just based on a lot of things we want to do. So um, because I work in TDA, topological data analysis research, and so a lot of things come down to, here's a complicated thing I want to compute, and I got to go figure out how to do it in a computer in a reasonable amount of time. So this is an example of that. So, so Max Fulman cut. So, so here's, here's the game. So you get yourself a directed graph. Um, and this graph has a source and a sink. So you've got your S vertex source and your T vertex sink. Mm-hmm. And you essentially have capacities on each of the, uh, on each of the edges. So sure. my directed edges, I now have an amount of stuff I can push across the edge. So um, I like to think about this with like, water tube flows kind of thing, right? So Mm -hmm. I've got how much capacity each of the edges can take. And so the game is try to see how much stuff you can push along from the source to the sink, uh, basically playing nice with those capacities, right? So, um, So flowing from one side to the other. So if you're at any vertex, all of your inward flow amounts should be equal to all of your outward flow amounts because you can't have anything hanging out at the vertex. Okay. Um, and so uh, your other restriction is your flow values. This is essentially like a second choice of weighting on all your edges. Your flow values have to be less than your capacity values, right? So you can't flow more across an edge than the capacity allows. Sure. Right? And so the trick is what's the most amount of flow you can get across? I hand you a, I hand you one of these graph setup problems. What's the, what's the most flow you can get across these things? Um, so the max flow min cut, uh, as the title would suggest, is that you also need to know something about the minimum cut. So what's, what's a minimum cut? So same starting input information. Um, what you can do is you can try to divide your collection of vertices into two piles. And the rule is that you have to have your source and your sink in different piles. Um, and the cost of whatever choice of piles has to do with, uh, essentially the cost of the capacities that go from one pile to the other, right? So you sort of add up those values. There's some negatives if things are backwards, et cetera, but that's the cost of a cut. Okay. Um, and so the game with that part of the problem is you want to make that as small as possible, right? Can I reorganize these vertices in such a way to make that cut cost low? And so the max flow min cut theorem says the capacity of the highest possible flow value is equal to the cut, the minimum possible cut value you could get. Um, And so this is cool because this means that you could answer your problem either by going and hunting for a maximum flow value or by hunting for a minimum cut value. And so it right. gives you two very different ways of looking at this problem to try to to try to solve something, mm-hmm. right? And these show up in, in all sorts of different application settings, right? So you could imagine like um, railway networks where you're trying to like move stuff around. You could try to do things with electric grids and you can do things with water flow, right? There, there's mm-hmm. lots of places where this thing would show up. Um, and so having access to, yeah, two different ways of looking at the problem is super useful. Yeah, so I, I've never thought about this before, so I'll just kind of, I'm not even sure if I can formulate the right question, but I'm trying to think, my mind immediately goes to extremes, so like, if you put everything except your source 
in one pile mm-hmm. or everything except your sink in one pile, is it obvious that usually that's not going to be good? I guess it kind of depends on the, the sort of setup you have, right? So, so I guess the simplest version would be like, okay, let's start with a graph that's just a path, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that case, I can stick a bunch of random numbers as capacities on my path. Um, and so the maximum flow I can get across this path is going to be something like the minimum, wait, did I do that right? Mm-hmm. The minimum yeah. weight capacity that I've got, right? Yes. Um, that minimum weight capacity is also going to be if I chop my path graph in half at that particular edge, right? That's as low as mm-hmm. my cost right. for my so, cut can go. Sorry, just to slow down a little bit for yeah. me. Um, <laughs> so like that capacity is like this one edge can only hold, you know, mm-hmm. whatever amount yep. of whatever stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. So this is kind of like the, the <laughs> bottleneck in the system, right? Right. Like mm-hmm. I could I could have pushed like 30 gallons back here, but if this particular tube only allows for five gallons, it doesn't matter how much I can push in the back yeah. end, right? It's got to be, it's okay. limited by this one, right? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, so then you basically like take that, that path problem and scale it up, right? So then you've got mm-hmm. all these sort of like other possible paths where you could push stuff through. You could imagine a vertex where you have like a capacity of 10 coming in and maybe five, two five edges coming out. And so your flow could be 10 in and then it got split up and there's all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so the way you prove this, so this is the Ford Fulkerson algorithm from the 1950s, I think, um, basically comes from looking for paths like this. So, so the whole problem comes down to basically that path example I was giving you, right? Mm-hmm. So you essentially rig up this modified version of your, um, of your graph um, and then look for paths from your start to your sink, um, where you try to see it, like places where I could push some amount of flow across that line, or across that path. Um, and what you do is you essentially update some sort of flow that you're trying to build as big as possible, right? So if I've got a path where the bottleneck value was five, I now push a value of five across each of the edges in that path. Um, and then I update this other graph I can use to keep track of things. This is called a residual graph. Mm-hmm. Um, and But basically then I, I update this flow and then I go look for a new path. And then I update this flow and then I look for a new path. And it all comes down to just finding these paths that have some sort of bottleneck in them and, and, and updating accordingly. Mm-hmm. That seems slow. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is this is not nice. This is not. Right. So, not so nice. there must be better uh, algorithms for doing this, but that, but that's sort uh, of the, yeah. the, the easiest so, to explain I, algorithm. Yeah. Right, easiest to explain, <laughs> and the one you get the proof off of. So that's the the four right. Fulkerson one, um, and of course I did not check this beforehand, but I believe this the running time has something to do with the uh, the the value of your maximum flow, right? So, um, and there's some caveats in here. So if you have integer valued flows, right? So I'm only allowed to put integers on each of my edges. Mm -hmm. That process will terminate, which is a good sign, right? (laughs) It will terminate at the best possible flow, which is a good thing, right? Um, and worst case scenario, you basically updated by one every time. And so the, the order of the number of times you have to do that update procedure has to do with like, uh, essentially the, the maximum flow value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. So yeah, it's not pretty, but it works, right? right? Uh, this is another one of these examples where like in practice, it tends to not be that bad, but of course you can construct the nasty right. examples, right? Sure, sure, right. So yeah, the, the, the theory is bad, but the practice is good, so that's fine. Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 So do you use this much? Does it come up for you? I haven't in a long time. I had a, the reason I was thinking of this was a, a, a while ago, I was teaching this um, summer program for like bright high school kids where we were mm-hmm. doing a, a topology class for like 
high school kids that basically have seen calculus. Okay. And so one of the reasons I like this was I was remembering I had I had rigged up this thing where I uh, I created a graph on the ground. And I put capacities on it in, involved in these sort of like, I don't know, I think it was like squares of paper or something like that. And messing around with like getting them to actually manually push stuff around on this graph and start thinking about flows and how you can how you can update information. Um, yeah, it hasn't hasn't come up in my research recently, but I think in general, just the like uh, messing around with problems where you can have multiple ways to find a solution. Mm -hmm. um, that's been really interesting lately because trying to rig. Uh, trying to look at a problem from a different angle where you might have an easier ability to go solve something than something else, right? So like, if you told me, go find the minimum cut in this particular graph, right? Uh, Knee-jerk reaction is like, okay, let's test all possible ways of splitting the two piles, which you really don't want to do, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> Algorithmic, bad idea, never yeah. do that, right? Um, and I don't have any good intuition for how, like, if you handed me that pro problem, I would start going at a any sort of algorithm that would get me anywhere. But because we've got this duality idea, right? I can go back and do this pushing flows through a network thing, um, and that gives you access to a way to solve a problem that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. And um, so, do you remember like really loving this theorem when you first saw it, or is it something where your appreciation has grown over time? Uh, it was probably now. I got to remember where I saw it. I'm gonna guess I saw it in, like an algorithms class in uh, in my PhD. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that I appreciated it at the time. I feel like a lot of, a lot of the beginning of my math career was like, okay, this theorem exists, but I'm not sure why I care. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's taken me much longer to start getting to the, like, oh, like the duality, like the point is the duality. The point is the, uh, accessing a problem from different, from different sort of viewpoints and having, having the ability to sort of, um, question the vantage that you're looking at something from because there might be a better way of doing something right and and better here is now a, a subjective term right like you know mathematically the theorem says i don't care but practically right there is a better and a worse way of doing something right and so you're going to end up kind of having having choices uh as you go about doing math research that's going to be you know um, better or worse in a in a practical sense Right, so it's it's clear listening to you that you work in an interdisciplinary environment, right? Because because hey. you know the, the mathematician loves the duality, but you know practically, the the engineer, the engineer <laughs> wants to, wants to, to, to find the, the the most efficient way to do it. So, um, yep. yeah, very cool. So I I wanted to come back to something you said a little while ago, and I think it just percolated through my brain. So you said that like if your your like capacities on these are all integers, then the process terminates. And the fact that you needed that if actually just made me really nervous. Um, so are, is, is it the case that like if, it, if you don't have integer and possibly even like rational numbers or, or something like this. Um, so like maybe if you had a, like a bunch of irrational or transcendental values on these that it might not terminate and yep, yep, yep. then you'd be sad. That's right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe yeah, you wouldn't be, be sad. sad. I don't know. Well, yeah. Okay. So, so um, I actually, I'm not sure of the answer if it's rational. I know that if you allow irrational values on the edges, you can definitely have examples that don't terminate. And basically what ends up happening, okay, so, so the way this pushing the flow through um, your residual graph, 
there's a there's a setup that allows you to essentially undo pushing through edges. Mm -hmm. So these residual graphs get this sort of um, backwards edge that's added to them of like, there's like the flow that you've already pushed through that you could undo and the, the flow that's available, which is like the capacity minus the flow that you've done to this point, right? Mm -hmm. And so finding a path in this graph could push new stuff through or essentially undo pushing things through and move it to some other path in your graph. Um, so what ends up happening if you, again, if you create incredibly contrived examples mm -hmm. um, is that your path, finding these paths in this graph can like keep <laughs> updating and then undoing the update, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. And you end up with this like mm -hmm. vicious cycle where you kind of like spin stuff around in circles and you just never get there. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's got all sorts of weird behavior. Like not only it like doesn't, it doesn't decrease, it doesn't convert, like it's, it's all kinds of nasty. Right. I would imagine with rational though, you can do the standard trick of just scaling everything to be an integer. Like that's probably yeah. okay. Uh, but, oh yeah, because especially if you've got a finite starting graph, yeah. Yeah, um, right. Good oh, point. Well, if you've got a finite, you're putting all these ifs that I wouldn't even <laughs> think you'd need. <laughs> well, who, deal, who deals sure, with I'm infinite sure graphs? I'm pretty sure everybody's gotta be finite. Let's, yeah. let's, let's have everybody be finite before I say something false. <laughs> yeah, all right. infinite graphs, That's fine I with me. If, oof, yeah, I, I am going yeah. to bet somebody's thought about that. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, since you started saying this with like, these, this is water pipes, I just immediately thought of like, okay, a city water system. And mm -hmm. I just know that that is finite. So yep. in my mind, this is always going to be finite. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And yeah, you sort of create one source by having it all come, in your case, Evelyn, from the Wasatch, right? It all just flows yeah. downhill. And then, <laughs> nice and then job. It, and then it all goes to the water treatment plant and that's it. So yep. now your whole, you got this crazy network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or uh, then eventually to the, the great, the uh, lessening Salt Lake <laughs> as it uh, dries out. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah, yeah. All right, so also on this podcast, Liz, we ask our guests to pair their theorem with something. And you mentioned what it was going to be ahead of time, and I'm really intrigued. So let's, let, let, what, what pairs right. well with Max Flow Min Cut? Okay, so we're going to pair this with the cross-strung harp, which I promise is going to make sense. So, okay. so give me a moment. So just for okay. some backstory. So my undergraduate, I was actually a, a harp performance major. That was like my, my previous life. And I sort of oh. backdoored my way into the math department. So I, uh, I have to interrupt yeah. and say that my sister is a harpist, was a harp performance major, is now working on a PhD in music theory, but teaches harp Yay. and has a harp studio. And yeah, that's Fabulous. such a cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. Such a cool you are actually, you probably might already know some of the stuff I'm about to say. So that's super exciting because, yeah, um, most people you talk to have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. So I, I spent, I spent like the first part of my life, professional life. Uh, I was going to be a professional harpist, got about halfway through and was like, no, nope, that's not for me. I uh, got into, started taking math classes, um, as, like ended up in a math PhD program, unbeknownst to me. And here we all are, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so uh, the thing with harps is, um, that, so harps, if you, look at a, if you look at a regular harp, right, what you're actually looking at are like the white keys on the piano. So no chromatics, no sharps and flats. It's basically in one key, right? So um, there was an issue in the, so sometime around the 1800s, where they were trying to figure out how to make a chromatic scale possible on a harp, right? Mm -hmm. So prior to that, there was sort of a trick where you could put things like levers 
um, on each of the strings and they would shorten each string by a little bit. And so you could basically get, if it was a nat, if you tuned your string in natural, you could get a, f uh, or wait, if you tuned your string in natural, you could get the sharp. If you tuned mm -hmm. your string uh, flat, you could get the natural, but that was mm -hmm. it, right? So you could do like the key of B and the, or the key of F and the key of D and then things got hard, right? Um, and so in the 1800s, they were trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And so there were two solutions that showed up at about the same time. So there was the cross-strung harp, which is uh, not what you've seen before, and the double-strung harp, which is what you've probably seen before, right? So if you go to an uh, orchestra concert, right, somebody's got a most likely have a cross-strung harp, or I'm sorry, a double-action harp, which is you have two sets of essentially these like twisty peg things that go on top of the string. And so now you engage a pedal and the pedal, if you push it down once it engages one of these, uh, these twisted bits. And if you engage it a second time, you get two of them. And so now you have three notes on every string. And so you tune mm. it in such a way that now you've got flat, natural and sharp on every string. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so this there is super much cool. rejoicing yeah. and there was much rejoicing, right? So this was invented by a watchmaker who was like trying to solve this problem because the mechanics of this are absolutely nuts. Like, I, I don't even know how the inside of my heart works <laughs> um, at the same time. So there was a, another option that was starting to show up, which was um, the, the cross strung harp, which was literally it kind of you, you got to you're going to have to Google this later. But it looks like two harps with uh, two sets of strings that meet at an X in the middle, sort of interlaced, you know, interlaced Whoa. in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I've seen these things. They, uh, my brain goes fuzzy. Like you can't focus on any of the strings, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea is that now you can kind of like move your fingers up or down to get sharps and flats. <laughs> and so now you have access to all the strings. Um, and it, it involves like different techniques and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so, so there was this like these two companies. So it was uh, Arard, uh, the Arard company. So Arard was the watchmaker that invented the double action harp and the Playel company had invented the cross-strung harp. And they were fighting about who was basically going to win the business, mm -hmm. right? Harp um, domination. And so, yeah. what's that harp? Yeah, uh, harp domination, yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, there's some there's some catty stuff in the harp world, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but so so they uh, so each of the companies so there's actually two very famous pieces for for harp um, that was commissioned by each company to prove that their harp was better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Playel company um, commissioned the WC dances, and the um, Arard company commissioned the Ravel introduction allegro. And these two pieces are basically made to be, I'm not going to say easy, but like manageable on your harp and not good on the other one right gotcha. right mm -hmm. um right so fast forward a hundred years and the double action clearly won out right so that's what everybody has now um but we still play both pieces right so mm. if you go to college for harp performance you're gonna play both and so so like so the Ravel isn't you know again it's not easy but it is manageable because it is you are playing it on the instrument it was written for <laughs> and then you get to the dances and like it is it is a combinatorial nightmare because basically what you're trying to do is figure out these fingerings and how to play these different chromatic notes at the same time when you don't have access to the mm -hmm. other set of strings, mm -hmm. right? You are now limited to trying to play the note on another string that you might've needed a half a second ago to do whatever, mm -hmm. right? 
And so, okay, so I, I promised that this was gonna come back to something that made sense, right? So the whole point of this is that the, I was thinking of the cross-strong heart because it's one of these two solutions for the same problem. And not necessarily that one of them is better than the other, but in certain cases, there is definitely a priority, right? That one of them really truly did better. <laughs> Yeah, that's so cool. And I have to ask one more question about the cross-strung harp. I don't want to, like, totally derail this, but I'm going to slightly. So, you know, when I watch my sister play, like, her right hand, you know, is on mm -hmm. one side of the strings and her left hand is on the mm -hmm. other. So with the cross-strung harp, then you're also, like, your right hand and left hand, if you were playing, like, yeah. on the diatonic, would have one would have to be up and one would have to be down, right? Because the I, strings go... Yeah. Okay. I will admit, I've never played one. Right? Like yeah, yeah you have you to gotta, switch. Like if you move to flats, oh, wow. you move. <laughs> you yeah, and you kind of want to be able to do both at once. So, so your technique would change entirely. I don't. I yeah. Don't, wow. I don't actually know how you would deal with this. If you want to, if you want to Google even more things, there's also a thing called a Welsh triple. And the triple, right? So what this is is now. Yeah. This will make your brain hurt if you try to look at this thing. It's now three rows of of uh, perpendicular vertical strings. So instead of being like crossed through the middle, they're like up straight up. And so now you've got white notes on the outside that are spaced wider than a normal harp with sharps Sorry. and flats down the middle. And so, and so now you have to like reach through the reach strings through. to try to grab. <laughs> that oh, seems bad. I just, it was, I, and I, 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 and I, I played one of those two and it's like, it's your eyes just can't focus. Like I can't decide which, which layer of strings to be looking at. It was, it was rough. Yeah. But I'm sure that's mostly oh, a function that's... of having grown up playing the, that is the, true. the one yes. that you played, right? I mean, if, if, if you yeah. if, if you grew up playing the cross strung or the, the the Welsh triple, it would just feel absolutely totally natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. but yeah. you'd it. I guess you'd have to do something for visual markers, like so. The harp has uh, is it the F and C strings are yep. a different yep. color to help you because on mm -hmm. the piano you can look at where the black keys are and that tells you what notes you're playing. On the harp, if they're all the same color, then you just have you know it's just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I guess on the Welsh triple. Maybe you'd have to. I don't remember what the coloring was on the Welsh triple. Yeah, on on modern harp, C's are C's are red and F's are black. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you get older strung harps, they used to be like switched, and that's all. Oh, that also no. makes my brain hurt. It's it's very yeah. much what you're used to. Yeah. Well, that's so cool. And it, what a funny coincidence that um, <laughs> you're you're Yay. a harpist, as is my wonderful sister. Hi, uh, dear sister. hi Rachel. <laughs> so um, so so, do you still play much, Liz? Oh, not much anymore, unfortunately. Uh, I've I've moved my harp around to multiple cities and houses. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I basically, I, I kind of put myself through grad school uh, playing weddings. So mm. that was nice. Um, yeah. And then sort of after, you know, kids and everything else, it just kind of turned into like, yeah, less so. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, yeah, uh, you'll get, you'll, you'll you come might back. come back. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, uh, so so as someone who's now an empty nester, I can tell you, you know, <laughs> it does it does happen. So yeah, the other thing is, you know, my kid's about to go off to grad school for music composition. So apparently, this is like this, this this you know, so just like Evelyn's sister, he's gonna mm -hmm. gonna go be a, a, a theoretical musician, I guess. He's a, <laughs> he's a percussionist, though, you know. And I can't understand how he plays drum set, right? That's like two arms and two legs doing four mm -hmm. different things. I, but but harp sounds yeah. And I thought I had too. to move around a bunch of stuff. They are so much yeah. worse. They got yeah. yeah. That was that was always the trick. So so uh, when I was in college, so the harpists all got our own practice room, so we didn't have to move the harps around. Everybody else had to like fight for it. But the mm. the percussionists also got their own practice rooms where they got right. like right. yeah. Nobody wants to move around. You know, the xylophone. So 
Yeah, although I've yeah. certainly moved Gus's drum kit plenty mm. of times. <laughs> oh yeah. Nope. I've yeah. if you've gotten to the point that you've bought vehicles based on your instrument. Yep. That's... I was gonna say that's Rachel's. <laughs> I, I think Rachel has taken a harp to a, a like car place to like test it. Yep. You know, in the lot I... to see how easy it I... is to load. Yeah. Uh, I have done that. I've I've purchased vehicles entirely because it could fit my harp in the back, and I've confused. Oh my yeah. goodness! I love showing up to car dealerships like this. It's my new favorite thing. Yeah. Um, so before we end this episode, I just, I didn't get a chance to say this earlier, but Max and Min can both be names. And I just feel like Max Flow and Min Cut just sound like really snappy and sound like either a superhero duo or like mm. maybe like superhero antagonists or something. I'm just going to put this idea out there for like, you oh, know, graphic good. novel about Max Flow and Min Cut. I want to read that book. Absolutely. Yeah. Or Max <laughs> yeah. Flow sounds like like a like a, a news reporter from the twenties, you know, like one of these hard hitting, <laughs> you know, like like in like in His Girl Friday, right? You know, like like Carrie <laughs> Grant and Rosalind Russell are just you know Max Flow and Min Cut, and they're yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we okay. also like to give our guests uh, a chance to to plug anything, or where can we find you on the line, or. Uh, uh, oh, I definitely should have thought of that in advance. Ah, uh, I don't know. Um, Come, You're... come see MSU. I like our, I like our new department. That's probably the first thing I should plug. Yep. Uh, I'm on Twitter more than right. I really should be. Uh, so you can always find me there. That's yep. yeah. Yep. I, I, I love math Twitter. It's, it's a happy place. Um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's mostly it. Uh, the other thing I guess I should plug is, uh, so I'm very involved in the women in computational topology network. Mm -hmm. Um, so if anybody is interested in anything in that general direction, so this is a, uh, group for and not uh, not just women so we're, we're um, aiming for a broader community of, of uh, gender minorities and, and a place for people to do math in a supportive environment because uh, that in my opinion is the reason I am still here and so I want to create that for other people. Yeah, I, cool. I, I, can, yeah. I, I can verify Liz ha is, is well known for her no assholes rule. Uh, <laughs> I, and, yes, I, and, I, oh uh, good we can swear on this podcast. Sure, eh, why not? Great. Hey, yeah. you just did. I just, so <laughs> just for later because my, my I do I do have a tendency to curse like a sailor, and so my husband yeah. before I started this was like, "Remember, Liz, you need to not swear on that." And I was like, uh, "Okay." We keep uh, but it. no, I have a very strict "does not collaborate with assholes" rule, and it has yeah. gotten me very far in life and made for uh, much better research. Well, life's too short not to have that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So now, are we going to go back and re-record like the swear version of Max Clubbing? <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm allowed to curse for the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty. I got your R rating. Don't worry. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's no, 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 no. R rating requires f bombs, right? So, oh, oh, so, well, so, so, so PG thirteen. I didn't. I. So we're doing for, okay. for movie ratings, right? For PG thirteen, you're allowed one f bomb. But if there's more than one, it gets an automatic R. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. All right. So that, that, that's we'll hold why, off on the F-bombs, yeah, just so that, in case this turns into a movie. That's, or that's, a why, yes. that's why you don't hear it as much in PG-13 movies, because they, they deliberately leave them out to get a PG-13 rating so that teenagers can come. So, But you can use any other swear you want. Anything. <laughs> but, but just one F-bomb. So. 
All right. Well, okay, not, with that not a movie important podcast. knowledge, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone on so many tangents at this point. I probably yeah. did math in here somewhere, right? Somebody did math. Yes, our, our yeah. math, hair, harp, and movie ratings podcast That's right. can That's right. now conclude. Right. Thanks <laughs> Great for to have us, you, Liz. Liz. Yeah, this was really Oh, thank fun. you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Baochan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at MyFavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.